I'm going to bring up two things about Don't Think Twice. One of them is that you're completely naked in the footage of the in the movie that we filmed, which means yeah. you're completely naked on the day. Dude, speaking of the naked footage, did yeah. I ever tell you, I was once at a concert, a punk rock concert in Bushwick. This girl came up to me and she's like, hey, I don't know you. I'm like, all right, this is interesting. But you know, weirdos like to talk to me. I'm like, oh, that's cool. How are you? She's like, I'm good. She's like, I was just at a test screening for a movie you were in. I was like, you saw it. You saw the cut. She's like, yeah. And I'm like, how was it? She's like, it was a really good movie. And I was like, but? And she's like, how come they showed like full penis 90 seconds in? And I was like, they showed it? And she's like, yeah. And then I remember telling you that and you were like, yeah, that's been like pretty consistent from audiences. Yeah. Why is like the third scene of this movie a like full screen Yeah, so we took your penis out of the movie because the audiences were too shocked by it. That is the voice of the great Chris Gethard. Uh, that always, that story always makes me laugh. But test screening, Chris's uh, nakedness in Don't Think Twice and then we took it out. It was something in the script that was very funny. <laughs> and in actuality was was just too much for, for I think the tone of the movie is the truth. Um, but he was, he was one of the stars of Don't Think Twice. He's been an actor in a ton of things. He's one of those people, if you if you think you don't know him, you probably do know him. If you look, you know, he was on Broad City. He was on The Office. He was on uh, countless things. Uh, he's been improvising for a, a million years at UCB and countless other places. One of the best improvisers I've ever encountered. And, and this ends up being, we're re-airing this episode today because it's one of my favorites for just yes ending jokes and ideas and bits uh he's so good at it basically the concept of this show is bring on friends and and comedians and creators and kind of kick around ideas in a very loose way and the thing about chris gathered is he's the best at that um it's his birthday tomorrow so send him a note over uh at chris geth on instagram He's been in New Jersey supporting the Writers Guild strike, um, which you can learn more about on WGA East or WGA West or uh, any of the Writers Guild uh, sites. You can see Chris Gethard live if you're in Canada. It'll be on May 26th. He'll be at Comedy Bar in Toronto, which is an awesome comedy room. You can hear him on his podcast, New Jersey is the World, or on Beautiful Anonymous. Our 100th episode of Working It Out is coming up, so stay tuned. And I'm working out new material this summer in Providence, Rhode Island. There's only a few seats left. Uh, Levittown, New York, and Long Island. Uh, New Brunswick, New Jersey. And also coming soon, Sag Harbor. We're going to post information about that very soon. I think you're going to love this episode. Uh, Enjoy my chat with the great Chris Gethard. I opened for you in 2014, one of the greatest things I learned, I mean, there was a lot of joke writing and there was a lot of like craft stuff that was very valuable, but also just kind of how to be a functioning professional. I yeah. learned a lot. Cause I was already, I had already been doing the UCB thing for years. Like I was already pretty established at where I was, yeah. but I remember you were like, if you want to come open for me, let me know. I was like, I will learn a lot about how it works outside of New York, outside of like the hipster bubble, the alt comedy bubble. That was a very unique tour because it was my Thank God for Jokes tour, 2014. And and I was working on Thank God for Jokes and I was writing the movie Don't Think Twice that you ended up being one of the stars of. (laughs) Yeah. And you were writing Career Suicide, which was not called Career Suicide at the time. No. And so I was, you were helping me work through my Don't Think Twice movie, and I was helping you work through career suicide. And it was like a very symbiotic, it was like one of the more productive times I've had work-wise. Like we were on a tour bus and like we were working all the time. With nothing to do, like here's the thing, like I don't want to, like Des Moines, we found stuff to do. Iowa City, these are great towns. Like the idea that the Midwest is flyover country, like no, it's not, we found things to do. The drives between them, there's nothing to do. There's just not work. much there. There's nothing to do except yeah. talk about it. Yeah. I wouldn't have done career suicide. I remember um, being on a tour bus and I talked about depression stuff on my old public access show. Yeah. I would mention it on stage and stand up in a more cursory fashion. And I'll never forget, like, we just, 
whatever was going on in my life, 2013 and 14, like you knew about, you knew as much as my shrink did. Like we just had nothing to do except talk to each other. Um, And sometimes it would be like Greg would be there or Joe would be there. But a lot of times it was just you and I. And I remember one of those times you were like, what's the, like, what's the realest it ever got with the depression? And I told you it's in career suicide, a story about a time that I crashed a car on purpose. And I think you were probably, there were less than 10 people in my life who knew that story at that point. And you just like took it in and it's hard for me to tell that story. And you just were like, buddy, that's hilarious. You got to tell that one on stage. (laughs) And I was like, absolutely not, man. It's the darkest thing ever. It's like the worst. I can point to the individual worst moment of my life. You're like, just come try it at Union Hall. I got the Monday night show. Try it at my audience. They'll be nice and it'll work. And I would always, there were times where uh, you're one of those people where sometimes I would have an opinion and I'd dig in my heels and be like, it'll never work. And then you're always uh, correct about it. And it, 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 I'm like, ah, now, because now I have to do it. So I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have uh, done career suicide without you. No way. And then conversely on those, I remember also on those bus rides, sometimes we'd be like, so when you were on the Friday night show at UCB and like people started getting cast on this and that, like, how did that feel? And I was like, why are you asking? And then eventually it was like, I'm writing a movie. I was like, got it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there definitely, there's a lot of Chris Gethard. Uh, DNA that is in Don't Think Twice. Well, it's also, I mean, that I think is a little bit of an overrated dialogue. There's truth to that. Um, there's a couple lines in there that that I think, I won't say which one. There's one line in particular. I'm like, that's pretty close to a real life example I gave you. But it was also the story. Which one you can say? I don't the, care. Uh, well, I don't want to blow up somebody else's, but people will immediately figure out. Someone who got hired for SNL <laughs> did I so I guest wrote there in 2007 for two weeks? Yeah, now these they tell you this is not a tryout slot, but a lot of people get these guests <laughs> like Julio Torres was a writer on my TV, he left for his guest writing, he got hired. Yeah, so he it's became not a, a full time writer for SNL. Yeah, it's not a tryout, but a lot of the people who get hired they do have this first. Yeah, um, so they take the pressure off by telling you it's not a tryout, but also if it goes great, I think it can reflect well. I had that 2007, two weeks I wrote there. Shia LaBeouf and Scarlett Johansson were the hosts. Got a sketch to dress rehearsal, felt pretty good, didn't get hired, screwed my whole head up to get that close. I yeah. mean, that show, how many New York comedians do we know whose brains got scrambled oh, coming yeah. close to SNL? Yeah. You know? um, and then about a year to two years later, a friend of mine got hired for some capacity on the show. And I was so happy and it had been flirted with. And then there was the writer strike that got in the way of it. And I remember saying like, I'm so psyched for you. This is awesome. And he basically, he looked, he was like, yeah, I mean, there were, I hate to say it, it's super grim, but there were stretches where I was like, if they don't just tell me if I have the job or not, I'm just going to kill myself. Right. And I didn't say it I mean, in the movie, it is expressive. Like, oh, like it's exactly what happened to me. Like, right, right, right. I didn't get it. Like, right, you're right. telling me you would have killed yourself if you were me <laughs> That's a, the a year and a half ago. Says, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but New York comedy was kind of totally upended. I think a lot of it, because of the explosion of alt comedy, from the Luna Lounge to the UCB in particular, to this pipeline to SNL, there was just this stretch of New York where it went from, like, everybody's hanging out and friends to, like, Oh, now people are getting commercials. Right. To like, oh, now it's not just commercials. Now it's like, you know, I remember like, I remember. So you're talking about the competition and don't think twice being like a real thing that you witnessed a lot. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the story of New York comedy in the 2000s and 2010s in a way. It is. No, it absolutely is. But it's also like, it's every, you know, who comes up to me a lot is bands. Right. People will be like, my band in Denver blew up. But then you know who's mad? Every other band in Denver. Right. It's like Bruce Springsteen. Is, <laughs> Bruce Springsteen's doing that. Like, how Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes feeling right now? I know. You know, like that's kind of the story of it. But yeah, I mean, the whole Rafifi. I remember, like, remember when 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 Aziz got cast as Randy and Funny People. I remember there were like some old school New York alt comedians who'd be like, he skipped the line, and right. it's like you sound so cooked. I'm always in my head cautionary tale about. I remember those conversations. I'm like, you sound cooked, and you don't even know it. It's funny, Melania. When Melania and I used to tour, we used to always reference this documentary that they made about Boston comedy. It's called When Stand Up Stood Out. So good. I highly recommend it to the listeners. And there's this great moment where Stephen Wright gets the Tonight Show. And this is the 80s. 
when The Tonight Show meant like stardom, yeah. obscurity to stardom. And and supposedly there's some story where this Boston comic just goes like, it's not your turn. And so, and so Mulaney and I would always reference that until oh. we go, it's not your turn. Well, I feel like Mulaney's another guy who showed up and he was so good so fast. Blew up. And I feel like there was a little grumble in there too. And it's like, okay. You go be as talented as John. No, I and know. And then you can complain. I know. Like, you know, like people don't, I remember being young and being wise enough to to see that for what it was. And now that I'm old, I'm in my 40s now and I see the young bucks, um, especially in the space I occupied. Yeah. It's helping me take a deep breath and be like, you don't get to take up the oxygen in certain rooms forever, you know, and that's okay. Not only that, the people who do have the meteoric rise have to suffer the experience of the meteoric rise. And that's what these comedians experience. If you go up way too fast, you come down way too fast. Like yeah. it's hard. It's not, I mean, these people who have like meteoric rises, it's a lot to reckon with. And I also know like having been at UCB starting in 2000, when I, when Andy Daly and Donna Feinglass got cast on Mad TV, they shut down the theater and had a party. <laughs> like, and then it became what it was. You know what I mean? They threw a party because someone got a job. And then it That's became just this person, that wow. person, this person. I'm like, I've seen a lot of people go on to great success. I've had some measure of success myself. And I'm, I've always, I'm always proud because I've remained level-headed enough to be like, I've seen people... I've seen people get their heads really messed up by it. And I feel lucky because I've kind of seen it from a million different angles and uh, managed to relatively land on my feet. Um, Except for this beard. Yeah, it's real. This beard is very Orson Welles sort of like troubled. It does. It feels that way, You're a troubled beard, man. Yeah. It's been a weird couple of years, Mike. You know that. (laughs) I was telling you right before we started, I just applied to grad school. Oh my God, that's wild. I think I'm going to go to grad school. Are you serious? Dude, I clicked apply today. I paid a $70 fee to apply to a grad school For what? For social work. I was going to say, psychology, social work. yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what it is? And I'd love your opinion on this. And I've talked about this publicly and I don't want to come off as complaining, but I'm like, I'm on stage in Edinburgh. And like I said, some of this is ticket sales. Some of this is problems with how it's promoted, in my opinion. Some of it's also, though, when you're in a room and there's 20 people in the room and you're, you know, there was one night where there were 17 people and I'm sitting here going, that's, I've been doing comedy 22 years. When it's less people than years, is this responsible? Yeah. And once I put the emotion of that aside, I sit here, I go, you know, I also got a pretty sick setup in Jersey. I love my house. We live about 12 minutes from my son's cousins and he's an only child. I don't want to leave Jersey. Yeah, I've been about as successful as someone can be without ever living in LA. Yeah. I had my own TV show. I've had an yeah. HBO special. So there's a part of me that's like, I better be smart and have a backup plan. Wow. Because I don't want to go to LA. Wow. And also, you tell me the past few years, I just feel... I used to occupy this sort of like renegade space, right? <laughs> Being like an underground weirdo. Yeah. But look at me now. I'm like a 42-year-old dad with a beard. <laughs> it's not my war to fight anymore, right? Can't go be one of the rabble right. rousers anymore. Right, you're not a renegade. You're, the, the, you're like the father of the renegades. I'm like, yeah. like The godfather all, of the renegades. I'm, I'm at a point on the renegades family tree, but a lot of them, there's now been enough generations down that family tree. I don't even know if they know that. So I'm sitting here, I'm like, what am I going to do? Go back on public access TV and start shouting about the stuff I shouted right. about 12 years ago? I don't, think I, I don't think I have, not only do I not have as much to say in that space, but I see the people out there who have the chip on their shoulder. And I'm like, yeah, they should be. Like I see Z-Way doing these interviews with celebrities and just getting them to freeze. And it makes me laugh so hard. And I'm like, yeah, that is making me laugh. That's reminding me what it felt like. Yeah. To be that guy, but I could be that guy twelve years ago. Me today, young father me. When, yeah. I'm gonna go pretend that I'm still that guy. I'm not that guy. That's not my fight. It's to fight fun, anymore. It, it's funny. Steve Martin said something. I, I want to say it was in Born Standing Up or an interview with Steve Martin where he said something to the effect of like, "There is an edginess that you lose in comedy because you become an adult 
And these things that are really edgy and high stakes, you start to see them in real life happen and to, to people. I'm also and then you're happier. like, ah, this is hard. This is hard to talk about when I know someone who's had that happen. Yeah. Yeah, that's true too, right? When yeah. When you're like young and, you know. You can be flippant when you don't know that many people who've had these five things occur right, to them. Right, right. Everybody who's like a 23-year-old guy making a well-crafted and very funny miscarriage joke. Like you right. probably aren't writing that joke when you're 33 because you've probably had five couples who you know who have had them. That's right. That. It's just a reality. Yeah. The other thing too is like I'm a pretty happy person now. And I mean, you've known me forever. Yeah. At that point, I'm cooked. Me happy? Right. You've What's, never been happy. What use does that have to comedy? You and I started at UCB Theater at the same time. Yeah. I was in a show called Little Man. It yeah. was me and Nick Kroll and Ed Harrow, Brian Donovan, Conrad Mulcahy, Chris Fosdick. And, uh, and I'm probably leaving someone out who's going to be furious. I don't know offhand. But, I remember um, the Mulaney used to come watch and Jackie Novak used to yeah. come up and watch and say hi. Like I met your whole Georgetown crew. Yeah, they were like the next generation crew. And then, and then you we used to share a slot at the old UCB, two UCBs, three UCBs ago oh, yeah. on 22nd Street. And yours was like an old, yours was like Billy Merritt. And Billy like, Merritt's idea, It was like an yeah. old-fashioned, like- 1930s. Yeah, it was a 1930s was Depression the era improv show. The Sunshine Gang, the president. Sunshine Gang. Billy Merritt, who's like a legendary teacher at UCB, it was me, him, Chad Carter, and Brian Husky. And legendary improviser Great. from the swarm. All, yeah. And, yeah, yeah, all three of those guys. I was the junior member of that crew. All yeah. three of those guys. Like Chad was on Respect. Oh, Husky was in uh, Naked Babies and Feature Feature. Billy was on the swarm. The premise was that this, all of this means nothing to anybody. Not to anyone. It was. Uh, <laughs> the premise was it was the 1930s. It's and, like that thing where you mention a band, you and people don't know the band. And you go, right. no, the band. They're from blah 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 and blah blah blah. Like, right, yeah. I don't know that. They were no, so, no, that was they from were, blah, 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 they were yeah. so important to people from Providence in 1996 to 1999. You have to trust me. You know, like that type of two thing. people who worked on the show, Mabel, Mabel Lewis, and Nick Dimitrilakis recently were having a conversation, and they um they casually didn't know the band REM. Not they didn't know the music. They weren't familiar that the band existed. See, and I, yeah. I almost like lost my. I mean, I, I sort of have an existential crisis. Not, not because who cares? You know, it's not their fault. They don't know what a, some band. It's holy cow! These people, these bands that we, you know, people like you and I idolize and we think of as like seminal, not just to us but to culture and the right. the, the whole way that music went and all the bands that came in the wake of those bands are because of the REM. And then does our whole comedy scene ever exist without music well, modeling the independent model? Of course. Like REM is one of the big college rock bands that built it. Yeah. Oh, good God. I know. It's a lot. It's a lot to handle. REM. Uh, yeah. Anyway, it was, yeah. A it was a 1930s government-funded arts project that, improv yeah, yeah. show. Improv show, and then that's, it was pretty and that's, great. And that's how you and I great. met. And we we did little man shows. Yeah. And then we would do, and then you would do Sunshine Gang, and then we would hang out at McManus Bar, it which was is what great. the Don't Think Twice uh, Bar kind of is modeled after, yeah. and don't where the the improvisers hang out afterwards. And um, that's where you and I were friendly. And then what's funny is is you and I, how we came together. Maybe this is too minute, but it's like we were at Bonnaroo. Yeah, at the in like 2012, 13, we were both like on the same bill or something like that, like in one of those tents yeah. in Tennessee. And the tent is always good at the music. The comedy tent is always good at the music festival because <laughs> generally it's one of the only air-conditioned locations. <laughs> I'm laughing in advance of your answer because I know that this is uh, not only people are thinking you're joking, it's actually oddly Dude, true. The comedy tent at Bonner is it's the best. Only it's popular because of temperature. It's always full and it's like half full with people there to see the comedy and half full of people who are just like coming down and they need to feel cool air. Yeah. On their skin, no, like, no, it's like you're really... staring at an audience. I've done Bonner a bunch of times. You're staring at an audience of people who are either on drugs or were on drugs. Like I've been awake for seventy two hours. Yes, I've been awake <laughs> for seventy two hours, and they look like they're at like a cooling station, yeah. and you're just a person who's talking at it. 
Yeah. But they get into it. Yeah. They can get into it. Yeah. But I, I told a story there. And you came up to me and you were like, dude, I haven't seen you do much stand-up. Like, you're getting pretty good, man. You're getting pretty good. And I, I remember saying that I remember sensing like, that's cool. Cause I'd always admired you. Um, for some very specific reasons, too. Um, and I remember saying, like, that means the world. If you ever need anybody to open shows, keep me in mind. It was probably like a, yeah, a year or two later that you reached out. And I forget we crossed paths maybe like Ask Cat a couple times. But you there. know what's funny is when I when I was saying hi to you, I've told you this before, someone had just said to me, like Chris Gethard was trashing you about something, but I don't know what it was about. I don't also don't think that that's true. No? No. All right. I can't imagine because I mean I'm I'm I I'm someone who's always my I'll take it out then. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> no, no, no. If it doesn't go anywhere, I'll Feels, take it out. No, because you should keep it in because it's one of those weird things about how the comedy scene works. Because I'm not really someone who's spent much time trashing others, to my knowledge. Um, if I have, it's stuff that I'll generally stand by. But I remember before, like, knew you from Little Man. Always really liked everybody from Little Man. Liked doing those shows. You guys always brought an audience, which was very cool as the yeah. other half of the bill. You know. And then I always remember it was you. And then when John came and, you know, there was a stretch where, from my perspective, it looked like you really took John under your wing too. And you were like, this guy's awesome and I'm going to make sure everybody knows it. And then you were the two who I'd noticed, like you'd come do shows with us at UCB. Like you'd jump in on the nights of our live storytelling show, storytelling oh, show right. that I started. I remember so that. I, that's when I started as a solo performer, branched away from the improv, was like ASCAP monologues, but really the show Nights of Our Lives. You were the guys, you'd come do it and we'd all go to hang out afterwards and you'd be like, oh no, we got, I'm going to, I got to go do the cellar or yeah. like, oh, I'm going to run out to Brooklyn or oh, no, yeah. I got this show here or there, or blah, blah, blah. Or I got to go up, I got to get up early because I'm, I'm starting my tour tomorrow. And I'm like, yeah. oh, these guys can go anywhere in the city. And I always felt that you and John were the two I looked to of that. And I, I always, I made that a major goal of mine of like, it doesn't matter if it like, Great. I can I can have pretty much free reign at UCB. That means I can do some stuff at Rafifi and some of the Brooklyn rooms. That's yeah. cool. That's cool. But like you guys are going to stand up New York, which back then to me felt like walking into a meat grinder. You know what I mean? You guys <laughs> yeah, can go yeah. to the comedy cellar, which felt like, oh, those guys all make fun of us for doing improv. I know. I, I get what you mean. Like you guys the- were all city. I've always used that's the phrase that the old graffiti artists used to use. Like, are yeah. you on so many trains that Every neighborhood sees your tag. Oh, that's interesting. That's all city. I like in the world that. Of graffiti. All city. And I always felt like you and John were two of the ones I knew who were all city. And then Whiplash, I felt like that show started to bring some of the club people. That's when I started to realize like, oh, a guy like Gary Goldman or Ted Alexandro, they'll come out of the clubs. They can swing and hit at the alt rooms too. Colin Quinn will come. But, but you know what's you know? funny is that's why I took my tour this summer to London, Paris, and Iceland is you want to be all, all world. See, that's something to aspire you to want, right there. You want it doesn't mean you'll kill in London the way you'll kill here. Yeah. But you want to bring it there and go, oh, that reference is actually specific to living in America. And who needs it? Who he, thinks like this, man? But who else is thinking like this though? There's a few like, people. Only dude, having them with you into your work habits, by the way. I don't know how much I've seen them in action. Yeah. And it's like when you're in work mode, it's impressive. And I'm a workaholic. And unbearable. <laughs> no, it's <laughs> okay. like, according to sources familiar with the matter. Look, dude, I'm like, there's a reason you get to take a comedic one man show to Broadway. You got to work as hard as Mike Birbiglia. And oh, I've seen that's it. That's nice. But you're also the only person I know who's like, okay, it's great that it's playing all over America, but uh, got to make sure it's hitting in Iceland. You've had a thing where. <laughs> you've become symbolic of a type of comedian in this kind of tribalism of comedy right now. Which and that is, like, is not, a, like, I don't know that that's of my own doing. And it's been very hard the past few years. Yeah. It's been fucking annoying if I'm being honest. <laughs> and I hate to get mad, but I've been slammed by uh, some people who seem to hold me up as the pinnacle of like all weirdo stuff. Yeah. I'm like, first of all, because I'm, I'm the easiest one to make fun of. Like, they're not making fun of Eugene Merman. He's on Bob's Burgers. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't really have much. He's I don't have Bob's much. Burgers. I don't have as much to fight back. You know what I mean? Like, but yeah, I, I, for some reason, I am the enemy. I, and, but here's the thing that, that is both uplifting and frustrating is that in New York, when that has happened, when, when, when 
there have been some people who have slammed me as like the weirdo guy. And I'm not trying to name names back because it really- The it, old comedy guy, the right. indie comedy guy. And they're like, their whole thing is like, that's not comedy, this is what's comedy, real comedy. Which is insane. Cause which, it's like, what's comedy is whatever makes people laugh and, and connects with people. And that that's all it is. And if you want to get cutthroat, like I remember like when some of that stuff happened, like one of the people who really went out of his way to let me know he had my back and who said some stuff to some people was like Keith Robinson at the well, seller. Nice. Who was like, why are you picking on that dude? Like, right. do I do what like he does? like an OG no. seller comment. Yeah, and I'm not trying to put words in Keith's yeah. mouth, but it, it meant so much to me. And he was just like, I don't do what you do. I don't get half of the shit you do, but I've known you, <laughs> you've been around New York for years paying your rent doing this and I respect that. Yeah. And I do feel like in New York, that's always kind of been the barometer. It's yeah. like, if you, and the thing that gets me is, some of the people who come after me for my act say that it's too alt, say that I represent like the soft side, mm. you know. Um, they're the same people who say comedians should be able to say whatever they want. And if there's a market for it, let it go. That's a good point. But it's like, well, if there's a market for me being right. like emo and sensitive, why is that somehow out of bounds? Right. And instead, I just have to deal with your fans on Twitter for years. Oh, wow. Even after people, even after some of these people have apologized to me personally. Wow. I just get tweet and if I'm having a bad day, it'll be like oh, this That's person's insane. fan just listened oh, to this gosh. episode they put on their podcast 2 years ago and they've oh, apologized gosh. to me four times but their fans are still shitting on me. I'm like I think I might need to go to fucking grad school, man, cuz <laughs> oh, am I going to fight <laughs> I'm going to fight this hard so I can hang out with oh. like bullies who don't like me, you know? That's what it feels like on the bad days and it's a bummer. It's a bummer. Between that and kind of outgrowing, that's the thing that's so frustrating. You were, we were laughing before. I'm not the representative of the alt scene anymore. I'm a 42-year-old right. white right. dad who lives in the suburbs. <laughs> the alt scene doesn't need me leading the charge anymore. You know, right. there's people leading the charge doing really cool shit. There's people like Sarah Sherman now. Oh my there's people God. like Patty Harrison now, Meg oh, Stalter yeah. now. Like these are people who I watch where I'm like, go, like, yeah. you're throwing, like, dude, seeing Sarah Sherman on SNL, that thing where she was messing with Colin Hilarious. and the prop got messed Amazing. up and she just rolled with it. I was, you can imagine, I was sitting there as the guy who did like the weird live show that went from public, all I ever wanted. I used to sit and think so much about like, let's mess up. I'm, it's, it's live TV. Let it be loose. Let the, let's let some blanks be left to fill, be filled in. Let's like see what happens when it crumbles and they have to watch us rebuild it on her. And then Sarah's up there and something goes wrong. She just has this smirk on her yeah. face. I was like, this is like, making me happy in my soul to see this happen on yeah. SNL. I'm like, yeah, those people are carrying that torch. So I'm like, if you, were mad, if you wanted to make fun of me five or six years ago, great. I also have a TV show to fight back. Now it just feels like I'm like an old guy just trying to fucking pay my mortgage and hang out with my son. Leave me alone. I don't even have a platform could, to fight could, back. I wish we could name names, but I know who you're talking about. There's been a it. few. That sad thing is there's been three or four, um, three or four, people who, who have done it and uh yeah i don't i don't know why well, I'm you know easy pot shot you know i'm low is. enough on the left they're not gonna come after you nope. for being a storyteller you're too successful at it no i they you they used to though in my 20s and my 30s people used to go after me he's not a real comic or whatever but then like what i feel like that? yeah what does it mean but i feel like they just kind of gave up at a certain point on that criticism but people come after you i think it's honestly it's tribalism and comedy and it's common enemy. Yeah. Right? So they're like, well, we need an enemy. Yeah. Who could the enemy be? Well, Chris is, you know, he's different from us. <laughs> and I just, it, it, the thing though is like, they all have a big tribe. I'm like, I don't really have, I don't really have a tribe anymore. I'm kind of a lone wolf. Like, I could always tell your fans when we were at on tour. Oh, that was so funny. I could always tell your fans from like a hundred feet away. Like, could. Chris, one of yours is coming over. There was one time we were in Florida. <laughs> they're all broken. Do you remember? They're all like, they all like have tattoos like head to toe. And they're like, they, they're on, a lot of them are on crutches. Like they're just like, they were, there's anything wrong with there, these crutches. There was one night where, I mean, there was one night where I remember you had said maybe a day or two before, like a lot of your fans, I can tell who they are because they're like broken people. Yeah. And then two nights later, there was a one-armed guy who came up and gave me a hug and was like, I watch every episode of your yeah. show. And I was like, not even making a joke. I'm like, 
he's actually like you said, oh, they're kind of broken people. And now there's a one armed man. Like yeah. it's actually literal that there is a person with a handicap 48 how, hours how later. How do we make this me. not disparaging? Because I'm not meaning it in a no, disparaging way. It was I mean, a beautiful I, thing. I, yeah. I loved representing it, it, those yeah, people. Yeah, like Gethard's fans are so uh specifically wonderful. They're just like, they're just I don't even I don't know if broken people is the right way to describe it. Your your fans are like people who who let's put it this way. Your fans are people who definitively feel like outsiders. Yeah. And they feel like they have been scorned by a lot by groups of people yes. and your comedy is inviting to them and that's right. awesome. So when those fans come up, it's usually pretty awesome. And but it's also a visual like it's there is it's, some spectacle to also, it sometimes. There's no demographic to it either. Like there's times where it's like there's the girl with the nose ring and the purple hair standing right next to like an actual grandma and granddaughter who both listen to Beautiful Anonymous together. There you go. And then you, you know like it's it's really inspiring and beautiful and uh and Beautiful Anonymous has been a oh, runaway it's been, hit. It's been huge for me. It's been beautiful. Thank you to Ira Glass for featuring the first episode. So I people, s- yeah. So people, if people don't know, Beautiful Anonymous is this amazing podcast that the Gether does, where he literally talks to an anonymous stranger for the full episode on essentially on the phone and yeah. hashes out we don't serious issues. Sometimes, it's sometimes, we, whatever. And sometimes it wants it's to fun be. and just yeah. fun and goofy. Yeah, but. It's it. What's so amazing about the show is that it rep- it, it shows like, and you're not showing off, but your prowess for improvising. It's yeah. a two. Per- it's essentially a two person improv scene, and the other person doesn't. And the other realize. person doesn't realize they're yeah. in an improv scene. It's just me listening. What's the most unusual thing? Yeah, what's the thing to jump on and you're finding the game in the scene. Exactly. It's Sorry. just using those old UCB techniques on the phone, but. Yeah, they they all show up and it's a beautiful thing and oh, love that podcast. It's uh yeah, it's it's funny too. It was on uh, This American Life and I remember like maybe like 5 years after it happened, I saw Ira Glass at Littlefield. I think Littlefield. Yeah, and I was like, "Ira, I just got to thank you like you, you put my show on yours and totally saved my life in a, in a way." He's like, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> I was like, "Well, got millions of listeners after that and it still gets like hundreds of thousands every week and it's yeah. been my job for 5 years and like as a comedian, especially having my first kid, the idea that I had this gig where I would have a two-year contract and I knew I had money coming in two years out, like that just doesn't happen. And like, it's been my job. At this point, it's been seven years. Wow. And he just went, I literally had no idea. We go to the slow round. I'm going to bring up two things about Don't Think Twice. One of them is that you're completely naked in the footage of the in the movie that we filmed, which means yeah. you're completely naked on the day in yeah. front of the whole cast, me and Keegan and, and Gillian and yeah and Kate. And I remember Amy who was and, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and they're um, literally on a poster. Oh, they're, they're all they're behind staring you on a poster. Yeah, they, oh, yeah, yeah. All there of we those, are. All of those people have seen me. Yeah, we saw you co- totally. We saw you totally naked. I feel a real family bond with that whole cast. By yeah, the way. me they're, too. They're right behind me, but like, I, I, I dare I say I love them. Yeah, I love you all. Yeah, same. Yeah, that was a great stretch. That it, was a great stretch. It was. It was a very intense experience. Yeah. We came in. We did improv workshops with Liz Allen together. Yeah. You were I you were the poorly. hardest to convert into being a fake improviser because you were a real improviser. It's almost like it's almost like you came into a movie about professional uh, figure skating and everyone else was an amateur and you were a professional figure skater and you're like, fuck these people and with their fake figure skating. It also, I also had layered, I was phasing out of improv at that time. Mm-hmm. That was, you know, a couple of years. I, I think I stopped performing at UCB uh, around 2012. We shot the movie, what, 2015, yeah. 2016? 2015 came out in 16. Yeah, so it was like a few years after and I was still, you know, um, UCB was becoming a little bit more how it ended in New York, which was like a little more corporate, a little bit more second city. Yeah. Um, I had stepped away and was really making a lot of inroads into stand up, but was, you know, 
never going to shake this idea of that's a UCB guy. And yeah. I, I can wear that with pride having been there when it was, but in the time it was also like, it was tough. It was tough to kind of feel like diving backwards, let alone the emotional side of, I mean, like there was, there were some nights after I didn't get hired at SNL that were very, very hard to be there. Yeah. To show up at ASCAT with all the people, you know, with Seth Meyers, Amy Poehler, yeah. John Lotz, all, all the these people. The who's who of improv yeah, feeling cast like, members feeling who like used I, to play in that ASCAT show on Sunday nights. Yeah, and I, I felt like, you know, a lot of those people went to bat for me, took a chance on me, and I didn't step up to the plate, and that was hard to reconcile. There was, there was a really hard night where the uh, during the writer's strike, they did a live SNL at UCB. Oh, I remember that. To yeah. raise money for the crew. Yeah. And I went and said hi, and, and UCB had been like, we don't want anybody sneaking in. You're going to get yelled at. And I remember being like, hey, I just worked there. Can I just come backstage and say hi? And they were like, hey, you're not, we don't know why you think you're, like the UCB could at the, part of what happened there was there were times where they would just send the harshest emails. They were like, we don't get what you, it, was there anything unclear about the email we spent? Like nobody tried to sneak backstage. I'm like, I've been performing here for free for 12 years. Yeah. Can I just... Sneak in and say hi to these people who might who I'm on their radar. Yeah, there's some hard nights, you know. There's some hard nights. So it was, I always felt bad because it took me a while. I should have just explained that to Liz Allen, but I'll never forget. There was one time she had us doing some like organic improv warm up, which you know, for people listening, that means it's like a lot of just like sound and movement, like a real actory exercise about yep. your physicality and zip zap zap, like making noises and moving yeah, around. Yeah, and at sure. one point, she's like, "Let's pause, Chris. I need you to commit like ten times harder." And then when we were done, she's like, so do you know why I asked you that? And I was like, yeah, because I wasn't committing at all. <laughs> she's like, oh, so you knew it? And I was like, yeah. She's like, why aren't you committing at all? I'm like, because this was my whole life for over a decade. And it feels really weird to dive back into it. And it's not that I'm, I'm not trying to be disrespectful to you or this. It's just, it's like, I'm, I think I said to her, like, I feel like this used to be my most comfortable pair of shoes and you're asking me to put them on and all I can see is how beat up and scuffed up and fucked up they are. Yeah. Like I'm looking down, like that's kind of how I feel. Like You're like a bank robber going back for one last heist. A little bit, a little bit. So it was a weird emotional experience for you. I also remember too, the scene, um, I mean, spoiler for anybody who hasn't seen the film, you know, the scene where my dad gets injured. Yes. And uh, I remember... I don't know if you remember shooting that. Oh, yeah. But I was like going off in a corner going like, okay, how am I going to react when my dad actually dies? Like oh, when gosh. I'm standing next to, in my, in my head, when, when I'm standing yeah. next to my father's coffin, like what are the things I wish I'm going to have said to him? Should I be saying them right now? Made myself start crying. Tammy Sager actually stepped in. They went to call lunch. The yeah. first AD oh, went to gosh. call lunch. Tammy ran up to you and was like, you cannot ask him to go right. eat a fucking sandwich and then come back right. and do this again. Like right. you're not going to get the same thing. Yeah. And also look, I was like a blubbering mess. Yeah. And I remember um, after Judd Apatow saw the movie, he complimented, he was like, oh, dude, you really acted your ass off in that. And he's like, that scene where you were crying, it looked like you were really crying. And I'm like, yeah, Judd, like I was off like thinking about like, what's oh my, my dad's God. death going to be like and this and that, blah, blah, blah. And, all, and I went off in a corner and was just like dwelling on it until I had a breakdown. And he's just like, they can also give you eye drops for that next time. Oh my God, that's so good. <laughs> I was like, what? He's like, yeah, there are these eye drops that are kind of like intentionally irritating. Put, it might even be like just like a puff of air or something. They put it in your eyes, start crying, you just shoot it right after that next time. You don't have to do all that next time. Like, oh my God. Uh, but the way you gave me notes in that movie too, I've joked with you forever about it too. So I could always tell when I was failing because you were you knew me so well and you knew how fucking fragile I am as a, as a person and you'd come up to me and be like, so... Uh, like it would be a big group scene with everybody and you'd just like come over to me and you'd be like, come talk for a second. We'd be off to the side and you'd be like, it would really help me if you could like do that. Like, you know, like totally. And you'd say something that was like totally different than what I did. Like, <laughs> oh, I totally fucked that scene up. And Mike's being real nice about it right now. Everybody else was nailing it. And you were just so kind about uh, giving me those adjustments. Oh man. Which was really funny. I was, do you also know, there's like a running thing on Reddit in particular of people... Um, it's come up every few years I've noticed where there's people who were at the tapings of the improv sessions. Oh, really? Who will talk about Don't Think Twice. Really? And specifically how what it was like for them to be watching the improvised sessions. And a lot of people have cited a story. I've seen it come up a few times where I improvised that line, I think. I think it was improv. I don't want to take credit if it wasn't. No, 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 please. Opening Keegan's character's casket and I go, oh, it's just his headshots in there. 
Oh my God, that's so funny. And you apparently called line. cut and ran across the scene because we had already shot everything in my direction. Yeah, and we're going to shoot like, that. We're going to grab sh- me by yeah, the shoulders. Yeah, we're going to get a like, cutaway of that. Why can't you say shit like that when the cameras are actually pointed at you, man? Okay, so this is called a slow round. <laughs> what nicknames have you uh, been given in your life, good or bad? The one that tormented me the most as a child uh, was Megahead. Megahead? It's so funny. Because of the size of my forehead, yeah. I don't think of you as having a big head, but you have a big forehead, I guess? Yeah, and it, well, the thing you have to keep in mind is I'm 42 now. Okay. And everyone thinks I'm balding, and I am, but I've always had this. Like, I had this when I was 13. <laughs> yeah, my yeah, grandfather yeah. had this. I've always had this widow's peak. So this looks like middle-aged balding, but I had this when I was 13, just less. Like, yeah, you have receding hairline. Yeah, but it's it's not receding as much as people think. Like, it started so poorly. Uh, Yeah, mega head. A lot of them were about my uh, size of my head. When TurboGrafx-16 came out, the the video game system, it was Bonk, because the main, their Mario. Oh, yeah, Bonk, Bonk. sure. Head Headley was a brief one. Head Headley. Mine was big. Patrice O'Neill used to call me Big Headley, yeah. Big head, Leah. Yeah, yeah, because I had big head. Got a lot in common, and then yeah, I mean, and then obviously get hard. Yeah, yeah. They didn't have to. They didn't have to walk too far for that. They didn't really. Get um, hard is literally how your name is spelled. Yeah, fanatic. I mean, you're a walking childhood insult. Just a fucking target. I might as well have just been born <laughs> as a target. <laughs> you had to be a comedian. And what I mean, else? You had no choice. Yeah, and I was also born with a crazy joint condition. Oh gosh, you yes. never noticed that? No, no. I mean, we've talked. I mean, about you've this. seen footage, dude. Speaking of the naked footage, did yeah. I ever tell you I was once at a concert, a punk rock concert in Bushwick? This girl came up to me and she's like, "Hey, I don't know you." I'm like, all right, this is interesting. But, you know, weirdos like to talk to me. I'm like, oh, that's cool. How are you? She's like, I'm good. She's like, I was just at a test screening for a movie you were in. And I was like, the improv movie? She's like, yeah. She's the first person I, yeah. I hadn't touched base with you or Greg or anybody. I was like, you saw it. You saw the cut. She's like, yeah. And I'm like, how was it? She's like, it was a really good movie. And I was like, but? And she's like, how come they showed like full penis 90 seconds in? And I was like, they showed it? And she's like, Yeah. And then I remember telling you that and you were like, yeah, that's been like pretty consistent from audiences. Yeah. That like audiences are like, why we is like, out, like, why is like the third scene of this movie a like it, full screen image? Out, yeah, so we took your penis out of the movie because yeah. the audiences were too shocked by it. What can I say, baby? <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> we showed it to test audiences. Well, because the joke of it was, it was based on a friend of mine from years ago who would kind of always be looking for what's the most shocking way. And how do you shock improvisers? There's nothing that shocks us, right? There's comedians. How do you even shock us? And sometimes he would just show up naked to something. And it it was funny. It was like, yeah, it was like, this is absurd, you know? And I was like, oh, that's sort of a fun character defining thing about Gethard's character. He walks in naked. And so we shot it fully naked. You're completely naked. And then... (laughs) You agreed to do it. It was so nice of you. you the makeup, dude, having to go off into a little room with the makeup yeah. person, and she was like, yeah, we can't have glare. Just like they oh, put powder on no, your face. no. Powder on my fucking gooch. No way, balls. really? Dude, lifting up my penis, getting powered. On, I was like, I'm really? so She's like, I've done it before. Don't worry. Like, everybody's a pro. No. So it was powder. It was like- it was like penis makeup? Dude, I'm so pale. Is it penis powder or penis makeup? I think it was regular makeup that's still applied to a penis. I don't think wow. there was penis-specific makeup. Right, but it was makeup. It, it was, wasn't just powder. Uh, no, it was mostly powder. Okay. From what I remember, it was mostly powder. Okay. It, was, it was powder, and then I think she, if I'm being totally graphic, powder, and then she also wanted to do like a, a pube check. Oh, my God. Just to make sure everything was was... Like in order, like it wasn't just gang- not looking like completely gangly and out of nuts. control. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like she just wanted to make sure I had done right and like done some manscaping before I got there, which I had, which I had. Yeah, hair we, and makeup. We would do those test screens <laughs> at the end of the day. It's hair and makeup. Yeah, it's hair and makeup. We <laughs> we did test screenings for that movie, and as you know, that people saw your penis. Um, but the biggest comment early on that we we guided around was. Um, uh, these two women go, uh, we don't like it. And we go, why don't you, why don't you like it? Uh, they're losers. And so to this day, Ira Glass and I will always say, they're losers. Yeah. Because it's like, 
but then so then what we did was we went back in the edit and we we created this scene where your character says and it gets quoted a lot your 20s are about hope and your 30s are, are about realizing how dumb it was to hope and so it's the characters saying it themselves yeah so that the audience goes oh okay they're understanding the plight that they're in and it's that feeling and you know i think that line that was a written line. Yeah. I take no credit on that line. But the thing about it that I think hits people so much is it tells everybody else, oh, when this one guy's moving on, the others know the window's closing yeah. and we might be losers. Yeah. And you know, like that that's a feeling I have often felt. I've often sure. felt like the last guy through the door when it comes to like establishing myself. Yeah. Historically in, in our comedy scene. And I've done a lot of cool shit along the way, but it, it's always felt like I'm skating by. For sure. Something about that line that that it's not yeah, it's not just you that's relating to that. There's a lot of people that relate to that idea. Yeah. Your, 20s, very, your 20s really very are about easy hope. for me to say. Very, very easy <laughs> for me to say. Like so easy for me to be like, yeah. Because your 20s yeah. are, your 20s do feel about hope, even when they're bad. Like I remember like in my 20s just being like, oh, this is terrible. But things are gonna get better. Your 20s, you spend a lot of time feeling like, why can't I just get where I'm going already? Yes, Which yes. Like presupposes you're going somewhere. Yes. Then your 30s, That's you're right. like, this might be it. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah, isn't that wild? There might not be, I don't think there's another place to go. Right, because your 40s, I mean, the odds of in entertainment of, <sighs> of your 40s going well. Oh, boy. It's not good. Yeah, welcome to grad school. You might- <laughs> <laughs> School. I'm like, I'm going to get this in case I need it. Because I might need it. I might need it. Okay. Do you remember an inauthentic version of yourself from your life? I think historically, I had to really reconnect with a lot of my friends who I grew up with. Yeah. Because I think when I started going for comedy, I threw myself in 100%. Yeah. And really disconnected. And I remember when I moved back to New Jersey yeah. a couple years ago. Even before that, I'd reach out to people. And people were always like, dude, it's cool. You're going for what you're going for. But in my head, I was always like, man, I'm out here like, I'm out here trying to like prove everybody wrong on behalf of me and the other weird kids from high school. Yeah. And then I realized I reconnected with all of them 10, 15 years later. And they were all like, no, it's like cool. You've done like, yeah, we got to see you on the office. That's awesome. But like. We all moved on and we have our own lives, right. and our own victories, and our own things, and our but own they families, didn't want to connect and our own jobs. You as much. Like, I had this dialogue in my head that I was somehow like representing all the kids I grew up with, but in a way that was very unfair to them because they weren't asking me to do that. Yeah. And it's that thing that I think a lot of artists learn of like, I sit here going, I'm going to prove everybody wrong. And that's a very dissatisfying way to approach an artistic career. Yeah. Because what happens is you accomplish things and you sit here and go, it hasn't put out that fire. Why not? Yeah. I thought if I ever got a job like X, Y, and Z, like I, I had Comedy Central half hour. That didn't put out that feeling. I had an HBO special. That didn't put out that feeling. I had my own TV show. That didn't put out that feeling. I go, why not? Because this idea, I'm going to prove everybody wrong. Yeah. Nobody's out here thinking about me. Right. There's nobody I need to prove wrong. There's nobody particularly against me. The, the bullies from my neighborhood when I was 13, 14 years old, they got their own kids now. Yeah, yeah. They're either shitty people or they grew out of it and they're good people now. They haven't thought about this me in 10 years and I'm thinking about them still. I love that. You know what I mean? And like yeah. the thing that bummed me out about it was there were people who I didn't talk to for years where my head, I, and I can name my friend Jamie, my friend Carson. Right. These kids who were like the other weird kids and we all would go hang out in Carson's. My friend Mark, he lives in Baltimore now. I stay with him when I tour in Baltimore. Oh yeah, we all hang out in Carson's basement. He's got a drum set down there and they're all in bands and I'm the funny guy. In my mind, I'm like, we're the weirdos and there's the cool kids and they don't think people like me succeed. I come from a certain neighborhood in town. My family didn't have money. I see the rich kids, all these things. And in my mind, I'm going, all these guys are going to be so proud of me. They're going to be like, fuck yeah, he's out there and everything he accomplishes represents us. And I realized all I did was just cost myself a year. I should have just been in better touch. Oh, wow. You know what I mean? Yeah. They were living lives and having their yeah. kids and slowing down. and You were out there trying to prove them wrong. Meanwhile, they were sort of figuring out their own sort of right and wrong with and their the, own lives. The bullies didn't care. And yeah. the sad part is the kids who I felt like I was like out here and I'm like, I'm going to be the fucking champion. Of, yeah. They didn't care either because it's not how real life works. 
Yeah. Me getting me getting to play a men's rights activist on Parks and Rec isn't doesn't mean my fucking friend Mark from high school is like throwing his fist up like Judd Nelson at the end of the Breakfast Club. Yeah. Can you think of a moment in your life where in hindsight it changed the trajectory of your life, but at the time you didn't realize it? I had a teacher in high school. The way it all started for me, I had a teacher in high school pull me aside. She was an English teacher. She was younger. She was like, take my drama class next year. I was like, I don't think that's for me. <laughs> She's like, just trust me. And she did all improv games. Um, and it made me obsessed with trying to find my way into comedy. I mean, I was, you know, back in the 90s, I was like yeah. VHS taping, whose line is it anyway? And like yeah. lived close enough into the city. Sometimes I'd like take the train and sneak in and my parents wouldn't know. Like a lot of kids would do that and they'd go finding underage bars. I was finding improv shows to go yeah. watch, you know? Um, but you know what I realized is like, I was just kind of a wise ass. Yeah. And she was noticing that and like, I was just kind of like an angry kid in high school trying to say stuff to be funny and be wise. Largely because my older brother was pretty brutally bullied. So I was always trying to just like chase people away and be funny yeah. just to kind of, you know, it's a weapon. It's don't mess with me. Yeah. I'm funnier than you are. Yeah. That's a reason to not mess with me. She noticed it and was like, this might actually be talent. Um, so wow. I certainly can look back to her saying, take my class as a moment that changed my life. It's more realizing me being a wise ass beforehand was a cry for help. And I had no idea that someone was actually hearing it. She actually heard it. I had, she's like probably the only good teacher I would point to. Um, there were other good teachers in my school. The only one who had a very po positive hands-on effect on my life. It's just this one woman, Melissa Blevins. She still teaches in New Jersey. She's great. And uh, yeah, just the idea that someone was like, this kid is not just like a wise ass. He's not just a punk. There's talent here. Yeah. I had no idea anybody was even realizing it was a cry for help, let alone answering it. What is, um, what's the best piece of advice that you've been given that you used? Ooh, I'm kind of in the process of betraying it, but I remember uh, my shrink when I started with her in 2007, I had a lot of stuff going on. I had been out of therapy for a few years. One of the big things that was happening to me, what it was the don't think twice era of my life. I was on a um, an improv team with my my two best friends in improv. Bobby Moynihan, he gets SNL. Zach Woods gets The Office, and then like people who I'd been teaching in class, like Aubrey Plaza, I taught her in her level three oh, wow. class. She moves up to Parks and Rec. Wow, so happy for all of them, but also stressing so hard. And Alana and Abby did Broad City. They had been students of mine. They gave me a part students, on that yeah. show, which was so nice of them. Um, but my shrink was hearing all this and seeing me just like feeling this weight. And she told me, she said, give yourself no other option. Mm. And I asked her what she meant. She was just like, basically stop accepting money for anything that's not the things you wish they were. Yeah. If it's not acting or writing or performing comedy, no more money for teaching improv classes. Yeah. No more like freelance magazine writing, which I used to do a bunch of back then. She's like, stop it. I was like, it's how I pay my rent. And she was just like, look, like the thing that's killing you isn't that it's not happening, it's that you don't know. So give yourself no other option. So here's some things I wrote down. I was waiting in line at a coffee shop and it was really, I was sixth in line. And I noticed that the woman who was fourth in line got really focused on her phone. And I thought, oh no, the area in front of her between her and the third person in line is getting bigger. And it feels like she's not even in line, which means I'm not in line. And the guy behind her looks on his phone. So now we're like a triplet of people who actually aren't in line anymore. And then uh, some new people walked in the cafe and they went straight in front of the line because they didn't think there was a line and they were right. And now I'm in a line to know. You're in a line to nowhere. You're in a line to that I, woman's phone. That's the funny angle. You know? I'm in a line to nowhere. I'm in a line to that woman's phone. 
Like imagine if you were in a conga line at a wedding that split in half and one of and someone just led you out of the wedding <laughs> to a funeral. <laughs> you know, like you can't just stop a line. Lines go places. You can't lead the line someplace else. To a funeral. Now I'm just in a line to be in this line doesn't the only reason to get in the line is it ends in the thing you want. Yeah, yeah. You now have me I'm, in a line. In that's a effect. Line. She might as well be facing a brick fucking wall, right? I'm in, <laughs> you just, you I'm just, in a line to nothing. You just joined a line because there's a line. That's really funny. That, that's great. Is your notebook like this where if someone found it, they'd call the police? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Are you kidding me? Um, I'm thinking of one of like thinking about how to describe the early days of... Um, in the first six months of being a parent, those early days, it's like my wife is just like, I remember she he was probably like four months old and she was like, I know you don't drink coffee, but if you could just learn how to work the coffee maker, just make me coffee. Can you just make me coffee? Like I don't have time to make fucking coffee. Can you make the coffee? And the first time I tried, I broke the coffee machine. My God, no. And I was just like, oh, I should, I should just kill myself. I'm useless. Oh. She's got this like silent communication system with this child who calms when he hears her voice oh and knows gosh. when she's around. And I'm literally a pool of spreading coffee on our counter. Me being like, I, first time I tried to use it, I broke it. This, I broke it. So this might dovetail into it because I have a joke that I probably won't use, but I think it's sort of funny. Is I was watching this YouTube how-to video on how to use an outdoor grill and the music sounded like porn music in the video. So I started fucking the grill and now my penis <laughs> has grill marks and my balls are lightly toasted. Uh-huh. But it's it's in that same universe of like of like of like you probably ended up on like the how-to use the coffee maker right, video right. space. But sometimes you have that with jokes. You write jokes, you go, "That's I'm never going to do that on stage. Right. I mean, I might do it on, I shouldn't say that. I might do it on stage at the Comedy Cellar or fun, like a fun like, it's one-off. It's not going to be in your show. It's not going to be in the full show. I've learned that it's just from you too. T- it's just totally not fitting with what I do. Yeah. Is there something funny too? I don't know exactly what it would be. It's like, and then I'm fucking the grill. <laughs> the next thing I know. And we're grown up saying this. Yeah. We're grown up adults speaking into microphones saying, so what if it's, I'm fucking the grill. <laughs> but, if you're, but if you're, then you're like. Um, we have kids. And then if you're, and then the next thing I know, a charcoal grill is licking my balls, which is of course like <laughs> the grill's stepmom. That's the grill's stepmom. I got the gas grill, the newer model. The charcoal grill is like the stepmom. Oh gosh. That's fantastic. The difference between- That's so funny. For a guy in his 40s, you know what's really, I like about what you're saying? For a guy in his 40s, the difference between pornography and a video about a girl- oh, so close. They're not that far Such apart. Such a fine line. They're Such kind of line. hitting the same dopamine buttons yeah, for me yeah, at yeah, this yeah, point. Yeah. Like, oh, that girl looks fucking <laughs> awesome. And that woman, is that, she's related or not? Are they related or oh not, those God. two women? I can't tell. Those videos, they give me similar pleasure. We do one final thing, which is working it out for a cause, which is I donate to an organization that you think is doing a particularly good job right now or needs help. And then we just shine a light on them. We link to them in the show notes and then people can get contribute if they want. The uh, I wanted to shout out, um, my wife is a very, very passionate environmentalist and it has made me really open my eyes. And she's a huge supporter of an organization called the NRDC. Oh, yes. Fantastic. Natural Resources Defense Council, I believe. Yep. And she's done tons of research. And uh, and uh, we donate to them every year because they seem to really put their money towards actual action and things that count. And yeah, I always, I'd love to mention them. I always give I always give to them. I, I do a lot of their shows. They've put on some fundraisers. And I, I can actually explain a little bit of what they do, too, is, is like if you look at like the Flint water crisis and things like that, they uh, often are, they're a legal counsel. They're often representing people who uh, wouldn't be able to afford to be represented in cases yeah. like that. And it's, uh, we, we really need those people. Yeah, yeah. And we need one of organizations ones. like that. And uh, I certainly, there's a lot of, call, you know, the on-brand one for me would be a mental health one, but I want to, uh, I want to shout out the environment because 
I think it's uh, th- all these things tie together, and also I think it will make my wife very happy. Yes, this is for this is for Hallie, and it's for Chris Gathard. This is NRDC, and um, thanks for coming, Chris. This is a blast. We we, we it's yeah, it's so, always so fun to talk to you. Oh, it's been too long. It's been too long. Working it out because it's not done. Working it out because there's no. That's going to do it for another episode of Working It Out. You know, I love Chris Gethard. I think you can tell. Uh, he's just a fantastic, fantastic comedian, improviser, writer, actor. Thanks for joining us again on Working It Out. Our producers are myself, along with Joseph Berbiglia and Peter Salamone, associate producer Mabel Lewis, consulting producer Seth Barish, assistant producers Gary Simons and Lucy Jones, Video recording by Chuck Staten. Sound mix by Ben Cruz, supervising engineer Kate Polinsky. My consigliere is Mike Berkowitz. Special thanks to Marissa Hurwitz, Josh Upfall, and of course, my wife, the poet Jay Hope Stein. Her book is uh, called Little Astronaut, a book of poems. It's beautiful. And of course, my daughter, Una, who created the original radio fort made of pillows. Thanks most of all to you who are listening. Tell your friends, tell your enemies. You know, you might not have enemies per se, but I imagine sometimes you're walking down the street and the person in front of you is walking very slowly and you're like a fast walker like me because you used to walk to school as a, as a kid. And you want to say like, excuse me, like why are you walking so slow and also like sort of getting in my way? Like as I'm trying to pass you, you're kind of drifting in front of me like, that's what you might want to say. So here's what I here's what I'd pitch. I'd pitch. Excuse me. I was just admiring the way that you walk, and then I was thinking one way uh, to think about comedy in a whole new way would be to listen to Mike Birbiglia's work on that podcast. <laughs> and then once you and then they're like and then they're like yeah oh really yeah. And you're like, yeah, I think you'd really like it. Hey, do you think of yourself as a slow walker or a fast walker? (laughs) This is a terrible idea. We're working it out. We'll see you next time, everybody.